It's a classic David and Goliath situation. Younger sister and older sister. In this case, it's a big age gap. The older sister's 12. That's Kennedy. The younger sister's is five. That's Zadie. And their mom, who was an only child, found their fighting to be kind of overwhelming. They bicker constantly. Like, they just fight and are, are at each other. I'm getting up! It's not physical, but it's a constant um, natter. It's a constant back and forth. And so two months ago, their mom, Lisa, came up with an idea, a way to change things between the two girls. She and I talked about it back then. You're going to notice in this recording that I have a pretty bad cold when we had this conversation. At the time, Lisa described for me the girls' history together. Once Sadie realized when she was about two that Kennedy wasn't going to play with her, um, she, she would do things like pinch her, she would scratch her, she would bite her. She wants her attention. Notice me, you know? Yeah. I want to adore you. Let me. Yeah. I have this relationship with my wife. <laughs> like, we'll be sitting on the couch. We'll be sitting on the couch, and, like, and she'll hit me. <laughs> like, play with me. <laughs> exactly. She, she'll literally say, like, pay attention to me. I like you. Sadie, get up. Get off of Kennedy. So as Zadie got older, Kennedy now sees her as this little kid who can't really play, who is a nuisance, who can pick out what's going to bug Kennedy and do it. And what was the low point of all this? When did you sort of look around you and just think, like, what am I doing as a parent? I guess this summer, sort of when they were both home from school and fighting all the time, and I just realized... It's not changing. And if it doesn't change now, it's not going to change. Because they're both getting... Zadie. I think because Zadie's now getting old enough to form this opinion of her sister. And I thought, I don't want that opinion to be um, that they're not allies. I don't want it to be that they're not friends. Now's the time to do something. And so what's your plan? What we're going to do is this little experiment. It's called the Killer with Kindness Experiment. I gave it a name... So are you some sort of behavioral psychologist or something? Oh, God, no. Um, No, I just sort of went on the internet to junior high science experiments and got a whole bunch of stuff and presented it to Ken. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, you you have, like, the two people who are most precious to you in this world, Mm -hmm. and you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And the thought that occurs to you is not, I'm going to seek professional help. (laughs) I'm going to go to a family counselor. No, no, no. What you did is that you went onto the internet uh-huh. and found experiments uh-huh. at oh, a no, junior high school, not started. even not even at the high school level. <laughs> no, okay, that's the end. That's not where I started. I mean, I read all the books and I talked to all my friends. <laughs> when David is facing off against Goliath, nothing normal is going to work. You know, normal is just going to keep you stuck. You got a situation where one side is super powerful, one side is very weak. Normal is just kind of status quo. Nothing is going to change. Your only chance is grand, extraordinary measures. A junior high school experiment, that is about as good as a slingshot. And today in our program, we're going to bring you three stories of people trying extraordinary things to balance the scales between David and Goliath. Act one is about a little girl and a big girl. Act two is about a little country and a big country. Act 3 is about some small-minded people and some very big-minded retail chains and something about American commerce that happens all the time, everywhere. 
that no one has noticed as a national phenomenon, except David Sedaris. Stay with us. Okay, okay, so you remember where we are with Act 1. You got Zadie, you got Kennedy and their story. Their mom, two months ago, was explaining to me how she was going to try to solve one of the oldest struggles that humans have ever had, the struggle between big sibling and little sibling. Again, we got a 12-year-old, we got a 5-year-old. Two months ago, the mom, Lisa, went to the older girl, Kennedy, with a plan. And Kennedy is the kind of 12-year-old who loves reading, who loves science, who loves experiments. And Lisa explained the idea of this one to her. We're going to have a month-long experiment where Kennedy is actually really kind to Zadie and plays with her. And we're going to see if that chills Zadie out at all. We're going to see if that changes Zadie's behavior. So the whole thing, I guess, is being sold to Kennedy as behavior modification. Uh, um, wait, wait, wait. And, and is, are those the words that you use with Kennedy? You say, I okay, did. I told her it was behavior, a behavior modification experiment. Yeah. How I see it as a parent is I want them actually to interact with each other. But that's not what I've sold to Kennedy. I haven't really sold it to her as modifying her behavior at all. I've sold it more as modifying or solely as modifying Zadie's behavior. Mm -hmm. So this is going to cut Zadie down from irritating Kennedy, from being a pain to Kennedy, touching her stuff, going in her room when she doesn't want to, her to. Um, If Kennedy's drawing on a piece of paper and Zadie comes by and will step on it, like that kind of behavior that Kennedy sees as an absolute pain, I've sort of sold it to to her as let's see if what Zadie actually wants is... Um, you to play with her and pay attention to her. So let's see if you doing that is going to stop all the negative behavior. So what she's going to have to do is is after school spend, um, I say an hour. She says that's going to be too long and Sadie's not going to want to play for an hour. Um, But that's what I'm envisioning, an hour playing together. Every day. Every day. I'm going to pay her, which is probably the biggest idea, what she likes the best. How much is she going to get? <laughs> she's going to get quite a bit. Uh, she's going to get more. She upped it. She actually negotiated her price. Um, I said 50 bucks for the whole month, and she said, no way. Uh, it wasn't worth buying in for 50 bucks. Um, so she's going to get 100 bucks. But she's got to actually do it. She's got to actually play with her sister. And they, they think my idea of what siblings, how they interact, is totally unrealistic. Because your ideal is based on? The sound of music. I mean, my ideal is is that they get along, that they love each other, that they stand up for each other on the playground, that they um, sing together. Sing together, that they. I mean, the, which is so funny because that's that has a lot to do, probably, with being an only child and always wanting a sister or, or a brother or just a sibling, another relationship. I mean, I, I was raised with the family watching that movie over and over, but and really having that sense of all these kids band together. But of course, they band together like those poor kids. They're traumatized. Their father's a tyrant. Of course, they band together, right? And they're running from the Nazis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not till the end. One little girl in a pale pink coat. Her. Lady, oh, lady, oh, lady, woohoo! She yodeled back to the lonely goat. Her. Lady, oh, lady, oh, um, have, have you shown the sound of music to the girls? Yes. And do you say, like, okay, do, do This is like what you that. should do. <laughs> you haven't. No. <laughs> I've said things like, the, like, just stop fighting and love each other. Though, I mean, I have said that and meant it. And I've, ha- I've said, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. My, I mean, Kennedy says to me, your idea is absolutely unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have siblings. Um, I, I mean, I think it's very, very possible that 
because of the age difference. You've got two kids. They're seven years apart. Mm -hmm. Like they're never going to be peers until they're adults someday. I just think it's possible that there's nothing that you can do. You're right. I mean, the thing is, I'm not expecting them to be to, to interact as peers. But right now, it's the opposite of that. I think Kennedy actively dislikes her. You know, she says it like that. She says it like, I really don't like this kid. What do you think the chances are that this is going to succeed? If you just had to weigh odds. 80% chance, 70% chance, 90% chance? Um, I'm optimistic. I, I put it high. I put it at 80%. 80%. That, that it's going to decrease the amount of fighting. Yes. I, I'm going to put this at 30%. Oh! <laughs> So, uh, Lisa Gabord, many weeks have passed since our first conversation, and um, you have run your experiment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Did it work? Um, a qualified yes. Well, let's get right to results. Okay. Are your kids fighting less? Um, by the end of the experiment, they were fighting less. By week four, less fighting. You are blowing my mind. <laughs> no, it's actually true. Could we just talk hard numbers? Now, now, do do you have a bar graph that you could yeah. hold up to the microphone or something? Yeah, I can describe it to you. I mean, what we did it is in sort of just a graph. So I took sort of a baseline, normal week before um, we started the experiment of fighting, but I didn't do all the fighting because that's all I would have categorized all day. I would have sat there che- checking off things. So I checked the number of times I had to intervene, and a normal week, I the I charted thirty one per day or per week per week. Okay, and, and so now now after four weeks... Okay, so after, by week four, we're down to 14. A drop of 50%. Uh-huh. Now, you made recordings of these days where they were playing, where you would just sit the tape recorder down yeah. uh, with the two of them as they played, yeah. and you just would let it roll. Yeah. And, um, sure and uh, we have some of those recordings here. And um, here's a typical one. They start off okay. So we both win. And then they start to fight. Can I get mine out? No, you can't do that. That's cheating. Zadie, I Zadie, 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 wait, stop. Zadie, stop for a second, please. And then Zadie uh, howls. And then uh, in these early recordings, you step in, usually to Zadie's defense. Kennedy, supposed to be playing together. And that was sort of what happened. I stepped in often. I mean, it got to a level where rather than have them fight, I would just stop it. And... I cut Zadie a tremendous amount of slack. So um, I could see how I fed into Kennedy's frustration um, and into Zadie's sense of entitlement. So in a way, I mean, I was setting up a dynamic that didn't allow them to sort it out. And I mean, it's interesting because I think the experiment, I didn't expect the effect that it would have on me. It made me step back. It made me step back a lot. Yeah, I have to say, like, by by the end of the of the taping, because you keep taping the whole way through, mm-hmm. um, it totally changes. Here, here's a typical uh, tape. What happens is that uh, they're playing together, and they'll start to fight. Zadie, did you hear me? Yes! Okay, no. Like, there's a recording it. of them playing Memory. Mm-hmm. And Zadie screams. Butterfly. And then Kennedy just basically keeps the game going and starts talking to her about, um, about who her friends are at school. Are you making friends at your new school? Yes. 
What are their names? Emma, Becca, and um, you never enter the room. And then Kennedy basically takes it by the reins. She keeps the game going, and she basically engages Zadie in conversation. And they start to talk like real sisters, and um, and then Zadie wins. Look, you won. Mama, I won! Mm-hmm. And that interaction wouldn't have occurred had I jumped in, which I probably would have done two or three weeks prior, right? So sort of by the end of it, it's like, you know what? Back off and just leave it alone. So when you started, you were saying this was going to be an experiment that um, was secretly on the two of them. Mm-hmm. But Kennedy thought it was just on Zadie. But in fact, it turns out that the secret is <laughs> that it was actually an experiment on your behavior. Exactly. And that my behaviors probably needed more modification than Kennedy's. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that a shift in my behavior would have the impact that it had. God, this thing has totally changed your expectations and your picture of them. In some ways, yeah. I'm loath to admit it. I mean, I think my overriding um, angst or questions over whether they would be friends and whether the fighting meant something, and I realized that's not what being siblings is. It's it's so complex and deep. Like, Zadie will will say straight out, I don't like Kennedy. I don't want to play with her. And at the same time, be absolutely worried about what's happening to her sister. And I realized those two coexist, you know? And I don't have that. I don't have that. There's, there's, there's nobody I have a love-hate relationship like that with. And I, I, I don't get it. And I'm prepared not to get it. And I'm prepared to sort of leave it alone and let it be and realize on some base level um, they're connected. I don't see the connection quite yet in some ways. Uh, and that's okay. I can trust it. Whereas before that, I guess that's the big difference for me. Before, I didn't really trust it. And so how many weeks has it been since you actually stopped the experiment? Been a couple, a week and a bit, like two weeks. And, and, so, and so what's going to happen? Is Kennedy going to keep playing with her? Who knows? I don't know. I, I would love to think yes. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's certainly not the first thing on her mind when she comes home from school. It's not like Zadie's endeared herself to Kennedy through the four weeks. That certainly hasn't happened. Um, I think she engages her a bit more, actually. So in terms of just actually talking to her about what was school like? Well, what did you do? Hmm. Um, there were a couple of times where Zadie got quite upset uh, over she got in trouble for going into Kennedy's room. And I got very upset with Zadie and made her sit on the stairs and she ended up crying and Kennedy went and consoled her. That's the first time that's ever happened. It's made everything so much easier, like being a sister easier. But I can't imagine Zadie and I singing together. I just... Yeah. <laughs> this, of course, is Kennedy, age 12. So, so Kennedy, did, did it work? Did the experiment work? Did yeah. You, it did. It did. Like, she's considerably nicer and easier to be around. Do you like her more? Yeah, I do. I do like her more. She's, like, easier to be around. And I feel like I can really, like, connect with her now. Wow. Which is good. Is she less annoying? No, we have to work on that. We'll have to devise a whole new experiment to get her to be less annoying. Really? Yep. And and, and just, like, realistically, do, do you really think you're going to be able to keep it up? I'm going to try. Like, I, maybe, maybe I can get my mom to still give me, like, increase my allowance maybe if I keep it up. 
I don't know. Like you, you know, I don't. I actually don't think it's right for somebody to keep paying you to be with your sister. It would almost be like if if you found out like somebody was paying your mom to be nice to you. You know, it would break your heart. It would. And, and that's sort of what it would be like, you know, if your sister would ever find out, like, oh, there were five years where actually you were taking money in order to be nice to her. Like, it would be the worst thing that she would ever hear. Yeah. I, in that case, yeah, I'm going to stop. But, yeah. Yeah. It's a constant struggle. <laughs> So what's going to happen? Because like, because it's hard to figure out like games that you can keep playing with her with the yeah, age like difference. it's really hard because because like memory. That's like I'd be on that. <laughs> I think I can safely say that you can find the two kittens like yeah. you know, without a lot of trouble. Pretty easily. Do you get anything at all from playing with her? Yeah, twenty five dollars a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I get paid. And if you're not getting paid, do you get anything else from playing with her? Um. I could say that I get, like, a sense of emotional fulfillment, but not really. Can you imagine you guys are going to be friends someday? (laughs) Sort of. Like, right now, it's pretty hard to imagine us, like, inviting each other over to dinner, but... I mean, she can't even read, for God's sake. (laughs) I know. So do you recommend this for other families that... um, I really do. You do? That they should bribe one one, one kid and that it should be the older (laughs) kid? Yeah, for the people with, like, kids who are constantly fighting, this is a good idea. We could patent it. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, sell it, and then, like, write up charts and sell it. That's Kennedy, age 12. My sister, my sister, tell me what the trouble is. I'll try to listen good and give the best advice that I can give. So this cannot be accepted. The feelings that belong to you must be protected. Hold up, time out. I shall get it together, sister. Tell her to be not so dismissed. Coming up, David Sedaris finds a David and Goliath story where we believe that you will probably um, side with, um, well, that would be Goliath. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. You check in our program, of course, we use a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, David and Goliath, stories of people doing extraordinary things to try to even things out between the two sides, give the little guy a shot. We arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Dreams of Distant Factories. What if there were a battle between David and Goliath that meant a great deal to David and nothing at all to Goliath? And maybe Goliath doesn't even show up. From Cambodia. Rachel Louise Snyder tells this story about the garment industry there. We first put this on the air two years ago, which was a kind of crucial turning point for everybody involved. The garment industry is 90% of Cambodia's exports. 
So when the Minister of Commerce visits a factory, he's greeted like a movie star. Hundreds of workers, all of them women, stand along the factory driveway in traditional Cambodian silk dresses, in maroon and gold, waving hundreds of Cambodian flags. They offer the minister flowers and fruit. As he walks through each section of the factory, workers stand up from their stations and cheer. Plexiglass cases hang from the ceilings and show the kinds of things they make. Fleece sweatshirts, cotton blankets, flannel pajamas. The minister, Cham Prasit, is particularly happy about the pajamas. There is one thing that we um, feel very proud is that there is one year when Cambodia was ranking number one in terms of uh, pajamas, women's pajamas for... Women's pajamas? Yes. <laughs> That's mean 20 million American women are wearing Cambodian <laughs> pajamas. And we are ranking number one for that in the U.S. <laughs> Sleeping soundly and having sweet dreams. <laughs> they hope they would have also thinking of Cambodians who are producing this for them. <laughs> They're not, of course, and that's Cambodia's entire problem in a nutshell. The clothing business has transformed Cambodia in a way most Americans can't imagine and know absolutely nothing about. In the 1970s, between one and two million Cambodians died, about a third of the population, in the country's civil war. The Khmer Rouge eliminated business of every kind, and even money itself. The middle class was slaughtered. For two decades after that, the country's economy was flattened, and chronic drought affected hundreds of thousands of families. But in the mid-90s, outside investors began opening garment factories, and within five years, clothes were the country's biggest export. Two things made this possible. First, an international quota system implemented decades ago kept any one country from being the sole provider of clothes to the American and European markets. That meant more than 50 countries got a shot at the industry. The second thing was that under the Clinton administration, Cambodia was part of an extraordinary experiment. It got special access to U.S. markets in exchange for good conditions for workers and factory monitoring by the International Labor Organization. The Cambodians didn't just make child labor and sweatshops illegal. They adopted some of the most progressive labor laws in the world. Eight-hour workdays, paid overtime, three months maternity leave, 43 days vacation, annual health checkups, and free health clinics on site. The access Cambodia got to U.S. and European markets made the industry explode, growing from nothing to 250 factories in just 10 years. The experiment was a huge success. But as of January 1st, 2005, both trade deals, the quota system and the agreement with the Americans, ended. And that's left Cambodia in a strange situation. It's the only poor country in the world that's agreed to all these strict labor laws. Left to the free market, it'll have to compete with neighbors like Thailand and Vietnam and industry mammoths like China and India. And so the question facing Cambodia is, can a poor country survive if it treats its workers fairly? The minister sees the dangers as keenly as anyone. Because uh, we were successful only in the garment sector so far, and we have not been able to diversify a lot, it's a kind of time bomb. And if you cannot defuse this time bomb, you're going to maybe explode in the future. If this garment sector does not survive in Cambodia, we are going to have a social crisis in Cambodia. 
girls who came from the countryside to work in factories, if they lose their jobs, they would never return to their village. And you know what would be their fate? I don't want to elaborate on that. What he doesn't want to elaborate on is that some of these women might turn to prostitution. Over a quarter of a million women work in the garment factories around Phnom Penh. They, in turn, support their entire families, often back in whatever village they came from. Minimum monthly wage is $45, and with overtime, most workers make 70 a month. That's two and three times what a police officer or teacher makes here. Garment workers send their brothers and their children to school and subsidize farms that barely survive. The good news is, so far, even with the trade deals expired, they've managed to stay afloat. None of the biggest buyers have left, and exports have even grown a little, 7% compared to last year, though in previous years, growth was more like 20%. But since January 1st and the end of all their trade protections, Cambodian factories suddenly are being asked by their customers to lower costs and prices. Some factories have closed. Thousands of people have lost their jobs. Workers are getting less overtime, and management is feeling the pinch. It's, um, it's actually very worrying. Our, our cost is actually very high. Vorn Van runs a relatively small factory of 800 workers on the edge of Phnom Penh. They mostly make Levi's jeans. To hear Vorn tell it, business is bad. Making clothes is more expensive in Cambodia than in most countries. Cambodia doesn't manufacture any of the materials it needs. So to create a pair of jeans, Vorn has to import not only the fabric, but the thread, the zippers, the buttons, the rivets, everything. Then there's utilities. Vorn says a recent study found that the cost of electricity is the same in Cambodia as it is in downtown Tokyo. And there's labor compliance, which is hugely expensive. Mm, just to give you an example, if uh, the cost of electricity that I'm paying every month is about $6,000. Now, if I do not bother about compliance, I will switch off the lights and my workers can sew in a dimmer light, yeah? I can save maybe 20%. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's a lot of money. And you're just talking about electricity. How about drinking water? If I don't give my, my workers proper drinking water, I can save $600 every month. If I employ, for example, um, kids under... 16, I don't even have to give them anything. I just have to give them a bowl of rice and it will work for me. You know, but of course, uh, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> shouldn't do that. No, it's not right. To be clear, Vorn's factory has a reputation for some of the best working conditions around. He believes in fair labor laws, that they're eventually going to transform society and the country by turning peasant farmers into an educated middle class. But doing the right thing, not dimming the lights, means Vorn's only scratching by. And he's not the only one. The danger is that factories will pick up and move somewhere, like Vietnam. Vorn says it's pretty easy. All you have to do is rent a space, ship your machines, and hire some workers. You can be running in two months. I can say that 70% uh, of the factories here are struggling. I don't think any of us are making money. I think it's just to maintain uh, the workforce here. You're just surviving. Just surviving, yes. And not only surviving, I know a lot of factories are, 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 making, are, not, are not doing very well. They may close down any day. 
if I can if I can plan three months ahead with confirm order, that is for me. I'm I I consider myself very safe. The situation is very bad now. The situation right now is that I cannot even plan for more than two weeks. So I do not know what to do. How do you get orders? Cold calls. You cold call? Oh yes, we cold call everyone. And but you personally cold call? Oh yes. And not only me. I think uh, every time I call a bigger factory, they will say something like, "Oh, Mr. Van, I'm so sorry. Uh, today you are the six person. You are the six six person that calls me uh, to ask me for order." How does it? I mean, I cannot imagine being under that kind of stress. Like, I just think I would have ulcers and I would be awake all the time and. Um, Thank, thank goodness I have an understanding wife. <laughs> um, I'm getting thinner, but <laughs> that's part of the job. I think everybody outside, if you see the, if you see factory managers, I think they're now a, a lot thinner than they were. <laughs> yeah. One afternoon, I go with a translator to one of the main manufacturing areas of Phnom Penh a neighborhood called Shakangri, where I've been many times before. It's the main route out of town, and it's lined with food stalls and other vendors that cater to factory workers. The thing that's interesting about this area is that I first came here close, close to two years ago now, and it was, it was a thriving area. There were just thousands and thousands of people out, and constant activity here. Like, it was just so lively and so noisy and everyone's just sitting around now it's not even hot season sometimes when I would come down here before it would be so busy that you you could walk faster than the traffic moved and now it it does seem like, like a highway we see a woman slicing pork and beef into tiny strips I ask her why the pieces are so small. Uh, normally, the garment worker they don't buy uh, a lot, so she have to cut to small pieces, which is weigh only uh, one gram. One gram? They buy one gram? Yes, they buy one. A lot of people buy one gram of pork. She said before people make more money, now people make less money. For well, some reason, she don't know. They just make less, so. Uh, it's, it's, it's been bad for the last six months, and it keeps going down. Here's a shoe, a shoe salesman. I haven't seen this before. He's selling flip-flops. Here's a pair of Barbie flip-flops. Palm tree flip-flops. How's business? <laughs> Not so much. So... Do, are there days where she doesn't even sell one single pair of shoes? She said to be, uh, talk about that, almost every day I don't sell. Almost every day? She said I sell a lot, I used to sell a lot before, but uh, this day I, I, I don't do good business. I don't know why, I wonder why I don't make good business these days. But... Uh, I really don't get it because I used to make about three, four hundred dollars a month by selling this old 
uh, credited to workers and they pay when they get paid. Uh, like yesterday, they uh, uh, worker got paid, but I didn't sell any pair of shoes. And yesterday was their pay day. Since the trade deals expired, Cambodia has had to hustle for new business now that it's competing in a new way against so many countries. This is where Su Ying Van comes in, Vorn's brother and the owner of the factory Vorn manages. He's also the head of the Garment Manufacturers Association. One morning we meet for coffee at a hotel in Phnom Penh just two days after a smarmy factory owner skipped town and blew off paying nearly a thousand workers. Mr. Van was furiously text messaging, arranging to sell the company's assets, mostly sewing machines and chairs, to cover as much as he could of the lost wages. I, I feel I have a duty to do it because, because the factory clothes are bad. That one is, is like a thief running away, and they don't even take care of the wages. But, but it's, it's in everywhere, in all capitalist countries, even in the state. But in America, in other countries, citizens has money to survive for a few weeks, few months. In Cambodia, they cannot survive without the wages for over seven days, ten days. So they're hunger, they're hunger. Mr. Van comes from a powerful family and has the kind of money where he's imported a stable full of horses from France. He could be doing anything. But he happens to believe in what Cambodia is trying to do, and he considers it his duty to help save the garment industry. To do that, his days are crammed with meetings, often with the Factory Association's Secretary General, Ken Liu, at his side. So, uh, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. They're sitting at a table with two dozen Singaporean men and women in Western suits. Tropical fruit and bottles of water sit on three big trays in the middle of the table. The Singaporeans are all members of a manufacturing association, and they're on a fact-finding mission, looking for a new country where they can open up their businesses. They've also been to Vietnam on this trip, and Mr. Van and Ken want to do everything they can to persuade them Cambodia is the better choice. They have two days. Ken does most of the talking, and he starts with Cambodia's trump card, really the only thing they have to sell. Cambodia has a good reputation with many international buyers, especially the big buyers that are concerned about their corporate image, concerned about corporate social responsibilities. And Gap has been our largest uh, single buyer. The Gap alone has 40 factories in the country and and constitutes uh, 25% of Cambodia's entire clothing uh, industry. Lots of other big names are here, too. It's weird to be sitting in a tiled conference room in Phnom Penh while vendors push wooden noodle carts outside and hearing Asian executives recite every brand name you'd see in your local mall. Levi's, H&M, Nike, Adidas, Reebok, all have indicated their intention to increase sourcing from Cambodia. Of course, Cambodia is not a panacea for production. We have our own internal problems, and these are the problems faced by all developing economies in the world, namely corruption, bureaucracy, 
the Cambodians are amazingly frank about the problems of doing business in their country. The corruption is notorious, and pretty much everyone in the region, including the Singaporeans, knows it. And there's not much point pretending otherwise. Then there are the unions. Just to give you an idea, we have at present 223 garment factories, and at the last count, 785 unions. <laughs> At, at last count, and, and, and growing, and growing. That's right, an average of three unions per factory. Sometimes one group of workers in a factory will go on strike, while the others work away at their posts. It makes negotiations totally unwieldy. Corrupt unions have extorted money from factory owners and other workers and demanded ridiculous benefits. Owners already feel a number of the rules, based on French labor laws, are unfair. In the meeting with the Singaporeans, for example, a lot of time was taken up with questions about breastfeeding breaks, which are required for new mothers. How do they happen, the Singaporeans wondered. Do the babies come to the factories? In Cambodia, working women leave their kids with family, so the breastfeeding thing is a logistical nightmare. There are a bunch of laws like this, headaches that are the cost of fair labor. But Ken tells them these costs will all be worth it. And then he tells them Cambodia's new strategy to keep the country competitive. It's a bill before Congress, the U.S. Congress, called the Trade Act of 2005. If it passes, Cambodia and a bunch of other poor countries would get tariff-free access to the U.S. market. Right now, they're paying an average of 17%. Ken explains that Cambodia is asking for the tax break, along with 13 other so-called least developed countries, or LDCs. They included Sri Lanka, hoping the tsunami there would earn the bill some sympathy votes. Ken and Mr. Van will be flying out to Washington to lobby for the bill in a week, and Ken lays out the pitch they're using with the American lawmakers. The angle is very logical. There are 50 LDCs in the world, 5-0, and the U.S. has provided preferential access for 35 of out of the 50 LDCs basically in the sub-Saharan African region and the Caribbean and the Central American, uh, sorry, South American. But 15 LDCs in the Asia-Pacific region have been left out. We are approaching the Americans, we are approaching their politicians to say, look, you have left us out. We are not asking for anything extra. We just want to be treated fairly as an LDC. You have given this to other LDCs. We feel it is fair you give the same treatment to us. And we have gotten very good reactions. Some of the politicians were very surprised. Oh, really? 14 LDCs in Asia-Pacific were left out? Which includes a couple of countries that have a lot of interest in the house, namely Afghanistan. We have got very strong bipartisan sponsors of the bill, meaning we have got Republican and Democrat sponsors. For example, we just had... Uh, what's... Obama? Barack Obama. Ah, we just had Barack Obama signed on as a co-sponsor for our bill. Uh, Barack Obama is seen as the leader of the young generation of politicians in the U.S., we are also in the process of convincing Senator Clinton because uh, having her on board 
would be very influential because she represents a lot of the female voice. This is what it's like to be the little guy up against the giant. You have to know everything about the giant, and the giant doesn't even know you're there. The Singaporeans ask for details about the bill and the likelihood it'll pass by the end of the year. They say the way Congress votes will sway their decision. The meeting adjourns. What Mr. Van and Ken didn't tell the Singaporeans is that if the Trade Act doesn't pass, and soon, by the end of 2005 or the first few months of 2006, it might be too late anyway. At Mr. Van's factory, Voren says all it would take is two months without orders, and his factory and others would close. In July, Commerce Minister Cham Prasit, Mr. Van, and Ken flew to Washington, D.C. to lobby for the Trade Act of 2005. The trip had been planned months in advance, and they'd banked on the fact that CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, would be resolved by then. It wasn't. For two days, they lobbied any member of Congress who would see them, which turned out to be eight people. Mostly when they heard the Cambodian story, they were sympathetic, and three of them signed on to the bill, but Ken says the congressmen were preoccupied with other issues. They were all obsessed with CAFTA at the moment. And when we asked them, you know, whether they were ready to support the bill, they said, uh, not at this moment. This bill is not going to move unless we defeat CAFTA or unless we get CAFTA approved. So that was a bit dis- dis- uh, you know, disheartening. They'd also hoped to meet with President Bush, or at least someone from his administration. But the president was also preoccupied with CAFTA, and with his new Supreme Court nominee, John Roberts. Their previous trips had gone about the same. Their bill only has 25 sponsors, short of the 70 they ideally want. Though this is way further than anybody thought they'd get. Every single person we speak to tell us, impossible. No chance in hell. When we speak to the U.S. administration, when we speak to the U.S. embassy, they said, quote, no chance in hell. You're not going to get it. But still, we commit our resources, we commit our time for this cause. And it's really a lot of money. In Cambodia, the garment industry is front-page news every single day. Factories open or close. New brands come in or leave. Workers strike or lose their jobs. And while this bill means everything to the Cambodians, the sad fact is that Americans don't even know any of this is happening. Here's Commerce Minister Cham Prasit. Actually, you know, for, for me, when I go, I have a, the feeling that I'm coming like a beggar. But I need to go, despite I feel like a beggar. Because I, behind me, I have two million and a half people who are counting on this trade act to survive. You'd think the one natural ally Cambodia would have for this bill would be the labor unions, who are always trying to get the U.S. to include workers' rights overseas in its trade bills. But in fact, Cambodia's most vocal opponent of the Trade Act is a labor union. And the most dramatic moment of their trip to Washington came when the minister was speaking at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Mark Levinson, the chief economist for Unite, the textile union, stood to argue with him. Levinson said that since the U.S. trade deal with Cambodia ended, workers' conditions have gotten progressively worse. 
what we hear the, from uh, workers in Cambodia is that since that, since that link ended, there's backsliding in Cambodia. The situation is deteriorating in Cambodia because the experiment, which was a success, is now over. Here's where he's coming from. Even though conditions have improved for Cambodian workers when they're on the job, on the factory floor, when workers hold demonstrations, even small ones of a dozen people or so, police come and run them off. There have been threats, intimidation, and beatings of union organizers by thugs trying to repress dissent. Two years ago, a wildly popular union leader was gunned down on a Sunday morning while he was reading the newspaper. Most everyone believes it was a political killing. 15,000 people attended his funeral. But when Mark Levinson brings this up, it utterly galls the minister. From his point of view, established democracies like America don't have realistic expectations of brand new democracies like Cambodia. A new country isn't going to solve all the corruption and civil rights abuses all at once. And without help like this trade bill, it'll just make the problems harder to solve, not easier. You have to understand the context we are living. You know the, the, policy, the, the, the history of Cambodia, but you have not known everything. We have gone through six successive political regimes in Cambodia within 30 years. People of my age, we saluted six different national flags of Cambodia. How many have you saluted so far? Only one. And through this type of conflict, genocide and everything, we come out and try to find peace first. We are all new. Six years ago, there is almost no union in Cambodia. There are not unions in factories because there are no factories in Cambodia. We are all young. The workers are young. The unions are young. The factories are really, the factory managers are new. And we have a system that is also new. We are open to democratization, but the question is that we need a, a kind of transition period where people mature, mature in learning the laws, in abiding to the laws. Before they leave D.C., Mr. Van and Ken check out a few chain stores in Georgetown. They never miss a chance to do this when they come to the States, to see the actual made-in-Cambodia clothes that trendy Americans buy. Their first store is Adidas. It doesn't go that well. Not made in Vietnam. Thailand. Indonesia. Turkey. The same scenario is repeated at Gap Kids and at Abercrombie and Fitch. At the Gap, things seem more promising. Ken spots some familiar shirts on a table, striped ladies' tops he swears he's seen in Cambodia. But when they check the labels, they see Sri Lanka. Not only aren't they finding Cambodian products, they're finding stuff they could be making in Cambodia, stuff they want to be making. Mr. Van seems almost mystified by his country's lack of representation. He picks up a tiny pair of khaki pants at Baby Gap. We can do it better in Cambodia. Look at the sticker. You look at the stitch. The stitch. Look at lousy, well, not finishing. Right? And we can do better. The stitch will this. be rejected by a quality control office. Yeah, we, we do better. Something Baby Gap has to do in Cambodia. Something wrong. Why, why Baby Gap are not done in Cambodia? I don't know. Good question. Why, why, why we can't make that? 
Why can't we make that? Finally, they have some success. They spot a blue soccer jersey costing $50. Cambodia will get roughly $10, or a fifth the selling price. The few other Cambodian-made garments they see are simple t-shirts or sweat tops. Nothing more complex, like ornamental stitching that commands higher prices. The kinds of things that China, Vietnam, and Thailand do. All in all, pretty discouraging for them. Cambodia is still a small struggling player in the industry. And the way they see it, the success or failure of their experiment at fair labor practices is now in the hands of the U.S. Congress. But the legislation that could help Cambodia, the Trade Act of 2005, doesn't stand any chance at all to make it to a vote in 2005. Mr. Van and Ken and the minister aren't giving up. They had scheduled another lobbying trip for October, but it was canceled at the last minute because of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. They haven't rescheduled yet. They're waiting for a time when U.S. politicians can give them more attention. It's hard to imagine when that time will be. Rachel Louise Snyder lives in Cambodia. His story also appears in her just-published book, Fugitive Denim, about the people who make blue jeans in the global economy. Lisa Pollack did reporting and recording for the story in Washington, D.C. It's been two years since we first broadcast that story, and the Trade Act of 2005, which Cambodians thought would save the clothing industry in their country, never got to the Senate floor. It was reintroduced this year, but is now currently sitting in committee. While the future of this particular act remains uncertain, the U.S. has put limits on the amount of clothing that could be imported from China. Those limits on China will continue until 2008. Ken Liu says that Cambodia is likely to lose a fourth of their garment revenues if those limits are lifted. For now, though, the Cambodians have actually done pretty well. Despite their fears, exports were up nearly 20% between 2005 and 2006, and they've remained up ever since, mostly because of companies like The Gap and Levi's want to buy from Cambodia because of their fair labor practices. Cambodia continues to send their lobbying delegation to Washington, D.C., hoping to get a version of the Trade Act passed so they don't get creamed when Chinese quotas end. Such a little thing Such a little thing But the difference it made was great There you go Wielding a bicycle chain Act 3, Adventure at Pooh Corner. Well, now we have this David and Goliath story where the Goliaths are giant American retailers and the Davids are everyday people, a very particular kind of everyday people. This is a national phenomenon that David Sedaris noticed when he was out on the road. A book tour allows one to travel the country and see almost none of it. The airport, the hotel, the store that's hosting you, that's usually the extent of it. But you do get to meet people and enjoy the sorts of exchanges you probably couldn't otherwise. Take this woman I met outside of Detroit, I think it was. We got to talking, and while signing her book, I learned that she worked at Target. Do a lot of people defecate in your store, I asked. And she placed her hand over mine, saying, How did you know? Well, I told her, it's like this. And my boyfriend Hughes, last year of high school, his family moved back to the United States, and he got a job at a certain clothing store. Okay, it was The Gap. 
Hugh got a job at the Gap, and on more than one occasion, a customer entered the dressing room and defecated on the floor. The carpeted floor, to be exact. He mentioned this about six months ago, and I was like, we've been together for how long? And you're only telling me this now? Because this kind of story is right up my alley. What kind of a person would defecate in the Gap? It could be seen as a political statement or an attempt to even some sort of a score, but that's probably giving credit where it's not due. There are bound to be exceptions, but from what I've gathered, the store itself is unimportant. In this woman's target, people will crouch down in the middle of those circular clothing racks, do it right there with no door to hide them. In Pier 1, they'll just lean against the wall and lower their pants. The place is an outhouse, from what I've heard, So is Sears and Pennies, and this sort of thing has been going on for ages. As an author on book tour, I believe it's my duty to spread pertinent information from one part of the country to another. Night after night, I addressed the subject of chain store defecation, and 97% of the audience would shake their heads no. You're putting me on, they'd say. I don't believe it. The other 3% would nod yes, and these were the ones who worked in retail. One man that I spoke to stocks shelves at Kroger and swore that it happens all the time. In my case, it's mainly kids, he said, which is something I heard from quite a few people. Some poor four-year-old will ask to go to the bathroom, and the mother will point toward a dark corner of the shoe department, or to a pyramid of canned pineapple. I guess they figure that because it's a child's, it doesn't really count, but I mean, come on, of course it counts. In Chicago, I met a librarian who decorated her children's department with an elaborate cardboard castle, something she'd crafted by hand and painted to look like stone. The castle went up, and come the second day, what did she find lying just inside the drawbridge? A turd, that's what. Though in this case, it was left by a teenager who confessed after committing a similar crime in the elevator. It's sort of a different category, but in Las Vegas I spoke to a guy who worked for casino security and told me that people are so reluctant to leave a favorite slot machine that they'll often defecate in their pants. He orders them to leave, but instead of skulking out in shame, they'll put up a stink, or most of them will, saying they'll go back to the rooms when they're damn well ready. The nerve. I said to Hugh, you'd expect that kind of behavior at the craps table. But slot machines? As my tour advanced, the stories got meaner and more senseless. I learned of a woman who'd entered the restroom of a bookstore and defecated into the center of the toilet paper roll, which is not one of those things you'd get right the first time. It would require a certain amount of practice, but practice where? When she had finished, the woman placed a roll back on its holder, which is inconsiderate, but not as inconsiderate as a college student who's taken to defecating into his dormitory's washing machines, the customer who defecates into the urinal of the delicatessen I heard about, or into the standing ashtrays of a once grand hotel. I'm guessing that most of these cases have to do with leaving your mark on the world, an impulse we all share on one level or another. Some shoot high creating lasting works of art. And others, well, who am I to judge? 
is a form of self-expression, defecating into a washing machine, falls somewhere between scratching your initials into a bus window and setting fire to a trash can. Whatever notoriety there is to be gained is destined to be private and hopefully short-lived. But that's what you get when you settle for number two. David Sedaris is the author most recently of the book Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim and editor of the book Children Playing Before a Statue of Hercules. was produced today by Diane Cook and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, Sarah Koenig, Amy O'Leary, and Lisa Pollock. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Adrian Mathewitz, runs our website. Production help from Sam Hogman, Chris Ladd, Seth Lind, and Bruce Wallace. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Our website, we can get our weekly podcast free or listen to our old shows for free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is brought to you by Volkswagen. When you get into a Volkswagen, it gets into you. And Focus Features, presenting Atonement, the new romantic epic based on the novel by Ian McEwan, starring James McAvoy and Kira Knightley. Atonement, in theaters now. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by Mr. Tori Malatia, who feels this way about working with us. I could say that I get, like... A sense of emotional fulfillment, but not really. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Public Radio International.